It's been over a year journey now for Pastor Steve and myself. I've given him many opportunities to back out of this, including this morning. I said, are we really going to do this? And he's sitting there with a microphone on, with a smile on his face. Oh, I guess we're really going to do this. On one hand, I'm very um, sad, nostalgic, um, because it's been a great six and a half years. The average youth pastor has a day of stupid about every other week. Pastor Steve is yet to have his day of stupid. He came close a couple times. I've never been honored by someone any more than I've been honored by Pastor Steve. He's honored me. He's become like a son to me. I got to get this service back up to give it to you, buddy. I'm sorry. It's just a little. But on the other hand, you can't be a sending church if you're not willing to send. I remember what one of my deacons told me one day, a few years ago, when someone that we loved very, very much was leaving the church. And he told me, he said, Pastor, you have to understand with your ministry of healing, hurting people, God gets them healed and then he sends them out. I rebuked him. (laughs) I didn't. I listened. On the other hand, I am excited today. I'm very, very excited because we are not losing Pastor Steve and Priscilla we're just sharing them with a little city called New York. We're going to do missions work in New York City. We have great missionaries to go. And the fingerprints of the Grace Place are going to be seen all over New York City. I'm not going to steal his thunder or tell his story for him. I love you, buddy. You're like my son. Amen. God bless you. Come and take your liberty in the Lord today. Pastor Steve, give it up for Pastor Steve. Well, good morning. I don't know how I'm going to do this, but I'm going to try. Well, this is obviously a uh, bittersweet moment for Priscilla and I. It's been a bittersweet It's been a bittersweet process for Priscilla and I. It would be easier if we didn't like it here. (laughs) 
but we like you guys. Mark Knowles taught me that it's, it's actually better to say you like someone because you have to love everyone, but you don't have to like everyone. And, and I like you guys and I love you guys. I said to Priscilla the other day, I seriously wish I could plant this church and be the youth pastor at the same time, but that would be a little bit expensive and he already hired a youth pastor, so I don't think that's a possibility. So... The truth is, is that you have to leave one thing in order to start another. One season has to end in order for another season to begin. And before I get into the message, I wanted to thank my mom and dad for your love, your support, your sacrifice. Appreciate everything that you've done for me, and I'm glad that you're able to be here at our last Sunday service. And I also wanted to give a big thank you to my pastor, my mentor, my spiritual father, and my friend. Thank you for mentoring me. Thank you for believing in Priscilla and I six years ago when you hired us. Thank you for having an open-door policy where I could barge into your office while you're working and vent to you about the people that I wanted to strangle. (laughs) That didn't happen many times, but thank you for always being a for always being a sounding board for me. Thank you for taking me under your wing. Um, Thank you for teaching me the balance between married life, ministry life, family life. Thank you for modeling to me a healthy marriage, healthy ministry pastor said this many times, but six years ago when Priscilla and I came, we were very hurt by uh, some things that happened in the last church that we were a part of, and he helped us heal. He helped us heal. Um, Not by anything he intentionally did, but just by being who he is. Uh, And so I want to thank you for that. Don, I want to thank you for mentoring Priscilla. Um, thank you for telling her that, in, that indeed it is the wife's responsibility to cook, clean, and serve her husband. <laughs> Actually, I still don't think she got that one. I'm just kidding. She's an amazing, amazing woman. She, I wouldn't want to do this with anybody else, but honestly, thank you for pouring into her life You've made a huge impact on her life, and in turn, it's made a huge impact in my life, so I wanted to thank you. As you very well know, my family and I are moving to New York City this week, actually Thursday, we're taking off. This past Tuesday, I signed our lease, and we are official apartment renters in New York City. That's a miracle in and of itself. It's very difficult to get an apartment. But I need to tell you that the Grace Place, New York City, almost didn't happen. When I first got hired here six years ago, God spoke to me and he said, in five years there was going to be a transition that happened in your life and in your ministry. And so last year marked our fifth year anniversary here at the church. And so Priscilla and I started praying about what that transition would be. We had no idea 
what that transition would look like. We didn't know if it was going to be another position here at the church. We didn't know uh, what what it was. We just knew that, that God spoke to us about a transition in five years. And so last spring, Pastor and I were talking in his office about my future, and, and he just kind of blurted out, he said, have you ever thought about planting a church? And I said, actually, uh, my wife Priscilla and I, we've been talking about planting a church. And he said, where? And I said, well, New York City. And so from that moment on, he gave me permission to move forward and reach out to some people. And so last June, Priscilla and I flew up to New York to interview with a church plant that had a core group of 75 people in it already. They had an interim pastor, but were looking for a permanent pastor. This church, it it was, this church plant, it was already a pretty solid church. They had a VP of Chase Bank in it, they had a VP of Citibank, they had business owners, they had high-ranking people in their positions at their workplace, and we thought maybe this was a God thing for us. We, we prayed about New York City. We talked about New York City. And here's this open door in New York with a church that could already offer us uh, a salary package. They could all, already offer us several things that to us was security as we moved from Texas to New York City. And they offered us the position to be their pastor, but I turned it down. Uh, Priscilla and I, we took a week to fast and pray about whether to take this position or not back in June when we got back. And we decided not to say a word to each other about the decision for an entire week. We decided to just pray and fast. And then at the end of the week, we were going to meet together and we were going to discuss our choices that we made. And at the end of the week, we had dinner at Payway, which ironically was the same restaurant that Pastor and Don... Uh, took us to during our first interview. And so we wrote down on a piece of paper our decision. We folded it up, and then we swapped papers right there at the table at Payway. And on my paper, I wrote that I wanted to stay. And when I opened up Priscilla's paper, I was surprised at what I saw because Priscilla, my wife, let's just say she's a little bit opinionated. And I figured she was going to have a decision. She was going to have an answer as to what she wanted to do. But I was surprised at what I saw. Instead of a definite answer from her, on that piece of paper was the scripture, Ruth 1.16. And it said, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. The reason I decided not to take that church was because of you, pastor. It was because of you, students. It was because of you, Grace Place. I didn't want to leave my students that abruptly. They wanted us to move right away. I love my students, and I didn't want to leave you guys without someone to care for you that quick. This was also around the time that I noticed a mass in my body, which ultimately was cancer, so I needed to take care of my body as well. And I'm cancer-free today. Amen. And something else that went into my decision was that Pastor has said many times that his latter years were going to be greater than his former years. And I believe 
I believe that part of my calling in life is to help fulfill that in your life. I just feel that way. The Grace Place New York City is part of your legacy as well as mine. What we accomplish on the Upper West Side of Manhattan and beyond, I'm already thinking about other churches that we're going to plant and other missionaries that we're going to send out. That's going to be the fruit of your labor as well as mine. Ultimately, I believe that God always wanted it this way. Well, are you ready for the word this morning? That was just my intro. I'm trying to be like pastor. Got my sports coat on today. Uh, Got my lapel countryman mic on, and I did a long intro. So, you ready for the word this morning? Tell four people around you, I'm ready. Four people around you, I'm ready. All right. Let's take a look at the book of John, chapter number four. Uh, There are fill-in-the-blank notes on the back of your bulletin as well. John 4 and 4. And it says this, And he had to pass through Samaria. And he, talking about Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. Can you put up that map for me? I'm going all out today. My last Sunday sermon, I got maps up. I'm using a laser today. I'm doing it all. I'm doing it all. I'm I'm going out with a bang. Jesus and his disciples were in Judea, and they were baptizing people there. And when they were finished, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. And so, using my laser, Jesus was somewhere over here baptizing people, and he wanted to go all the way up to Cana in Galilee up there, okay? So that's where this story kind of takes place, a little background. And in between Jerusalem and Cana was a town called Sychar in Samaria. Let me bust out my laser again. So Jesus was trying to get from here to here, and there was a town right here called Sychar in Samaria. Here's the significance of that sentence. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There was ongoing conflict between these two groups of people. And guess what? Jesus was Jewish. And there were several reasons for this conflict. First, Samaritans, they were a mixed race between Jews and non-Jewish people. And so the full-blooded Jews, they felt superior to this mixed race of people. Secondly, Samaria, Samaritans, they, 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 they moved their worship center from Jerusalem to somewhere in Samaria. Okay, and the Jewish people did not like that. And so there was a social, racial, and religious conflict that arose between these two groups, and they avoided contact with one another as much as possible. How many of you know that we're in the midst of a social, racial, and religious conflict right here in America? Right here in America. Pastor just talked about it. Um, uh, As we all know, As we all know, on Friday, same-sex marriage was legalized in all 50 states. And yes, I'm going to go here. The conundrum that Christians are facing today is how to stand up for our beliefs, yet simultaneously love and minister to people that are gay, to people that, that don't agree with our worldview and don't agree with our beliefs. And FYI, we need to do both. Everybody say both. 
And if we choose to do one, it should be the second thing. Because you'll naturally do the first thing if the second thing is focused on. My favorite Facebook post on this topic, and I read a ton, was from our very own Tim Brown. Okay? And, he, and here's what he said, and I loved it. There are examples of people in the Bible who live in a land with legalities that contradict morality. Daniel prayed. Jesus pulled tax money from a fish's mouth. I am in this world, but not of it. Simple to the point, and I thought it was so true. Do you want to know what the best thing we can do if we want to, ch- if we want to see change in our country? The best thing that we can do is preach the gospel and get people saved. Get politicians saved. Get gay people saved. Get straight people saved. Just preach the gospel and get everybody saved. You see, because this is not a political issue, it's a sin issue. And we've all got sin issues. Some are just different than others. And some issues are, 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 are protected by the government and some are not. And so, and so sin issues, they need to be delivered by Jesus, not amended by politicians. I'm preaching in here. I am preaching in here. I say all that to say this. We've got tension and conflict all around us today. And so what Jesus was facing in this particular story is very relevant for us right now. Here's something else that's significant about this sentence that Jesus had to pass through Samaria in order to get to Galilee. There were other routes from Judea to Galilee. This particular route wasn't geographically necessary. Jesus could have taken another route and many Jews would take other routes to get from Jerusalem to Galilee. They wouldn't go through Samaria. But Jesus specifically went to a place that he didn't need to go to in order to have a divine appointment with someone. Let me put it to you in different terms. Jesus went to Samaria for a God-initiated meeting with someone. And that leads me to my first point. Jesus is challenging us to pass through some places that we would normally avoid. If we want to do ministry like Jesus, if we want to engage our community like Jesus, we have to be willing to pass through some places that might be a little uncomfortable. Jesus could have just gone around Samaria, but he chose to go through Samaria. He went to a place that Jews tried to avoid. Like I mentioned before, Samaritans were viewed as unclean and second-class citizens to the Jews. As we tell people that we are moving to New York to plant a church, most people are like, why on earth do you want to move to New York City? Most people are moving from New York City to Texas. You want to move from Texas to New York City. Are you insane? The traffic is terrible. It's so overcrowded. It gets so cold over there. They aren't open to the gospel. The cost of living is so high. Have you seen the rent of the apartments? Absolutely, it is insane. All of those statements I just mentioned are true. So why are we moving to New York City? I don't know. Maybe we're crazy. Maybe we shouldn't. I'm just kidding. It's because when Jesus becomes the Lord of your life, he will send you to places that others try to avoid. Someone needs to hear that this morning. The call of God on your life will require you to go through Samaria. The church, not this church, because it's perfect, of course, 
But the church in America, in an effort to be set apart, we have avoided at all costs passing through places that are considered worldly or sinful. Trevin Wax said this, Sin is not something you need to be sheltered from, but delivered from. Why are we afraid of Hollywood? Why are we afraid to engage the intellectuals? Why are we afraid of the projects? Why are we afraid of the political arenas? Why are we afraid of different religions and different cultures and people that are different from us? Do you know why? Do you know why we're afraid? Because we're afraid that sinners and worldly people will somehow rub off on us if we get too close to them. Why can't we, as spirit-filled believers, rub off on unbelievers instead of fearing the other way around? Do we not have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us? Do we not have the resurrection power of Jesus inside of us? Why are we scared? Why are we afraid? Why are we intimidated? Instead of loving unbelievers, we will avoid them and judge them from afar. There are people that will picket an abortion clinic and tell the women that they are killers and going to hell, but won't even try to build a personal relationship with a young lady that is contemplating an abortion or one that is feeling the guilt and shame of just having an abortion. Yet we'll picket, we'll hold up signs, we'll blow places up. How about, how about developing a relationship? How about getting in the midst of their mess? Priscilla and I were going to watch a movie in downtown Fort Worth one time, and this group of so-called Christians were street preaching. And this was their message. If, they'd see, if they saw a lady uh, walking down the street, you know, and kind of, you know, and re- not really revealing clothes, but just how people dress, you know, short shorts, tank top or whatever, they would start calling them horrific names, degrading them, demeaning them. And, and, and they'd tell them they're going to hell, and they'd just say all sorts of stuff. And Priscilla and I finally had enough, and we just went to one guy, and we confronted him and said, you, your message is not going to be received because of your approach. And of course, he, he, at that time, he didn't receive anything. But the truth is, is that no one is going to receive our message if our approach is hateful and judgmental. Do we want to make a difference in people's lives or do we just want to be heard? Or do we just want our opinions to be heard? What do we want? Do we want change or do we just want to spout out what we believe? Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan, said this. Tolerance isn't about not having beliefs. Okay? It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. Andy Stanley, lead pastor of North Point Church, said this, if your belief allows you to mistreat people, you're misbelieving as well as misbehaving. Why do we expect people that don't know Jesus to act like people that do know Jesus? It amazes me when people are appalled at the things unbelievers do. Unbelievers do what unbelievers do because they're unbelievers. The only reason you don't do what unbelievers do, the re- only reason I don't do what an unbeliever does is because of Jesus and Jesus alone. I, it's nothing inside of me. It's not that I'm more well-behaved. It's because Jesus died for my sin and I want to please him and honor him and love him. I feel like telling Christians, you're a Christian and I question your behavior sometimes. You know what I'm saying? I question my behavior sometimes. 
John chapter, whoa, someone said that's right. Whoa, whoa, whoa. John 4, 5 and 7. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water and Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. The text says that the Samaritan woman came to draw water at noon. I want you to remember this because generally women would come either in the morning or in the evening and they would come in groups to draw water because they wanted to escape the, the, the midday sun. And, you know, women, they want to go everywhere together, the bathroom together. So they, they, but she came alone and she came at noontime when the sun was beating down. You need to remember that. Could it be that this woman came alone and at a time that no one else would be at the well on purpose? And then Jesus asks this woman if she would give him a drink. How many of you know that Jesus is asking every one of us this same question this morning? Will you give him a drink? Will you do what he's asking you to do? Will you go to the places that he's calling you to go? Will you love the people that he's calling you to love? Although Jesus was God, he was also human, and he asked this woman for some water because he was tired and he was thirsty from the walk from Jerusalem to Sychar. Today, he is asking all of us to help him get his name out to the unchurched and the unbelieving. God could get the name out in a split second or or in the snap of a finger because he's God. He can do anything, but he chooses to use people like you and me to carry his message. He, He uses people like you and me, flawed people like you and me, to preach the gospel to people that need to hear the good news. Will you give him a drink of water today? Will you quench his thirst? Verse 9, the woman was surprised, for Jews refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you were speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. Two things stick out to me about this part of the story. Number one, Jesus doesn't discriminate. The gospel is for everyone. The good news is for everyone. The gift of salvation is for everyone. It doesn't matter, male, female, gay, straight, transsexual, white, black, yellow, brown, purple, Republican, Democrat, independent. The love of Jesus is for everyone. Repentance is for everyone. Forgiveness is for everyone. Jesus does not discriminate. He wants everybody to participate. Didn't think I was going to rap at my last sermon, did you? (laughs) Galatians 3.28 says, In Christ's family there can be no division into Jew and non-Jew, slave and free, male and female. Among us you are all equal. Everybody say equal. That is, we are all in a common relationship with Jesus Christ. What that's saying is, Jesus is the great equalizer. We think that our behavior is the great equalizer. We think our church attendance is the great equalizer. We think our fancy sport coats and our fancy shoes are the great equalizer. We think that if we didn't sin for for two days, that's the great equalizer. But Jesus, and Jesus alone, and what he did on the cross, the fact that he was our substitute, I'm preaching in here, the fact that he took your place, he took my place, he took our sin upon himself... He is the great equalizer. 
The Samaritan woman was shocked that Jesus would even talk to her. Not only was she Samaritan, but she was also a woman. And the second thing that sticks out to me is this. When you bless Jesus, you are the one that's really getting blessed. Jesus said, if you knew who it was asking you for water, you would ask me and I would give you living water. Living water is better than earthly water. I don't care if it's Fiji or anything. Living water is better than earthly water. Salvation is better than riches here on earth. uh, Salvation, there's nothing better and greater than salvation. When you answer the call to give Jesus a drink, you are the one that's ultimately going to be blessed. It's a blessing to present the gospel to people that are in need of a Savior. It is a blessing to go where He's called you to go. It's a blessing to give when He's called you to give. The Bible says that we are storing up treasures in heaven. After this interaction, Jesus asks the woman where her husband was, and she tells him that she doesn't have a husband. And Jesus says, you have spoken correctly. You have actually had five husbands, and you're living with your boyfriend right now. The woman is absolutely amazed that Jesus knew this about her and continued the conversation with her because of this, and she believed in him. You see, the problem is, is that the conversation usually stops once we find out someone doesn't believe the same way we believe, when in fact the conversation should only start, right? And, and this woman, she was like, man, this guy's a man, he's a Jew, and he knows my history, And he's still talking to me. How many of you know, if we have that heart, people will see Jesus inside of us. Verse 27, just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Why are you talking to her? Meanwhile, the disciples, verse 31, were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? Did someone run to Chick-fil-A, the disciples asked each other. (laughs) Had to plug Chick-fil-A because there's not a lot of them up there. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvests. And it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work and now you will get to gather the harvest. This is exactly what we see every time we walk the streets of the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The Upper West Side is a neighborhood in Manhattan. Manhattan is one of the five boroughs that make up New York City. The other boroughs are Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, and Staten Island. And I have a couple of pictures to show you this morning so that you kind of get a visual of where we're going. Uh, God has called Priscilla and I to do two things at our church plant. Number one, we want to plant a church for young families. And as you can see, this is a park in the Upper West Side. Just a normal day at a park, Hippo Park. Stroller, city, young family, city. uh, Just all sorts of kids. When you think of Manhattan, you think of young professionals. You think of singles or you think of married people before they have kids. You think of people that once they have kids, they move out into the suburbs. But over the last 10 to 15 years, there's been an influx of young families that have decided to stay in the city or move back into the city because it's become very family-friendly. Go on to the next picture here. That, that is the, uh, um, what is that? 
American Museum of Natural History where Night at the Museum was uh, filmed. That's in the Upper West Side. Columbia University. We're going to have to hook up with Chi Alpha over there. This is a, kind of a shot of the Upper West Side. This is a park in the Upper West Side that used to be infested with drugs and drug dealers, and now it's very family-friendly. Shot of the Upper West Side. Just wanted to give you guys a little visual. This is the Upper West Side. Ooh, I get to use my laser again. <laughs> Upper West Side, Central Park over here, Hudson River over here, Riverside Park over here, and we're going to plant our church somewhere over here. Somewhere over here. Oh. Oh. Right here. Upper, Upper West Side, Central Park over here, Hudson River over here, Riverside Park right here, and we're going to plant our church here. The Upper West Side, it's made up of 57 blocks, but within those 57 blocks, there's over 209,000 people that live there. And a lot of those people are unchurched. A lot of those people do not know Jesus. A lot of those people grew up going to church, but they have stopped going to church and they've fallen away from the truth. New York City is the eighth most unchurched city in the United States. Did you know that half the unchurched population live either on the West Coast or the Northeast? That means 50%, over 50% of the unchurched in all 50 states live in 12 states. 12 states. To some, that's a red flag. To me and my wife, that's a green light. I truly believe that the fields are ripe for a harvest in that area. Back in March, we did a church planters boot camp in Washington, near Washington, D.C., and then after that boot camp, we drove up to New York City, and what was supposed to take four hours took seven and a half hours because it was snowing. And so my wife and I, we, we, were, in a, we were in a car, and we had a lot of time to pray and talk and reflect, and, and during this time, I was feeling very, very overwhelmed. I wish I could say I felt like Caleb and Joshua going into the land, but I felt like the other ten spies. The task seemed too enormous for me. And so we go into New Jersey, and uh, a bunch of tunnels connect Jersey to New York. And so we went through the Holland Tunnel, and we were listening to worship music. We were listening to a Bethel CD. We had no idea what the title of the songs were or anything like that. And so we go through the tunnel, and as soon as we exit the tunnel... I just say, God, thank you for giving us this city. And, and, and uh, you know, as soon as you exit the tunnel, you see the big buildings, you, you see the lights, you see the snow. It's about 7 o'clock at night at this time. Just gorgeous and beautiful. And I say, God, thank you for this city. And my wife immediately said, look at the screen on the car. And the song, right, right as I exited that tunnel, the title of the song changed, and the name of the song was called Home. And in the midst of me feeling all of this doubt and seeing all of these obstacles, God was saying, this is your home, and I am calling you here, and I don't care what you're feeling, I don't care what the obstacles are, I don't care how big the giants look, I am calling this your home. And God has just done little things like this all throughout our our journey, and he's continuing to do it to confirm that this is what we're supposed to do. Didn't Jesus say that we are supposed to be the light of the world? Don't you have to go to a dark place in order to have light be effective? We were at FAO Schwartz when we were in New York City a couple weeks ago picking up some gifts for our son and daughter, small gifts, because that place is expensive. Uh, Some very small, 
Uh, and I go up to the register to pay, and I ask, or, and the lady asks how I'm doing, and I say, I'm doing great, and I ask her how she's doing, and she says, I don't even know how to answer that question, and I, I say, what, what's going on? What's wrong? And we get into a conversation, and, the, and in the midst of that conversation, I tell her that, that we're, we're planting a church in, in the city, and she says, man, I need a church. I need, a, I need some of that Jesus in my life, were her exact words. And so her name is Tara, so please pray for Tara. I believe that she's supposed to be a part of our church, and we're going to FAO Schwartz as soon as we move there, and we're going to grab her, and she's going to be a part of our church right away. If I were to turn on the flashlight in my phone in this room, it probably wouldn't be that noticeable. But if you turned off all the lights and I turned on my flashlight, every one of you would be able to see the light on my phone, and I'd be able to navigate myself out of this room. You see, because my flashlight becomes noticeable in the dark, the light of Jesus inside of us becomes noticeable in the dark. Some people are like, why can I not make a difference for Jesus? Why can't I stand out? Well, maybe you're not in a dark enough place to stand out. Maybe you're, full, you're, you're constantly spending time in places that are full of light. Maybe you need to go to a dark place, and then your light will shine. Your job is a dark place that you have the opportunity to be light in. If you're in school, your school, young people, next level students, your school is a place for you to be a light in. You hear me telling you that every single week. Your home might be a dark place that you have the opportunity to be a light in. Your neighborhood might be a dark place that you have an opportunity to be a light in. Your gym might be a dark place that you have an opportunity to be a light in. Let's go back to the Samaritan woman for a second. Do you remember how I talked about the fact that she went to the well at noon by herself? Well, now we know it must have been because she was judged and she was deemed an outcast and a misfit in her village because of her lifestyle. It must have been because that's not when women go to the well. She had five ex-husbands and she was living with her boyfriend at the moment. And my second point is this. Jesus is calling us to love the outcasts and the misfits. I felt like an outcast and a misfit growing up in Midwest Kansas City, Missouri. I was the only Indian all the, in elementary school and middle school. And then when I got to high school, there was one other Indian. Always felt like I didn't fit in with the white crowd, the black crowd, or the, the Mexican crowd. Those were the only three crowds in Kansas City at the time. I, I always, I just never felt like a fit in. I always felt like a misfit. I always felt like an outcast. And so the group of people that I felt mostly like I could fit in with was the bad crowd. And so in order to fit in with the bad crowd, you got to do what bad crowd people do, and that's bad things. And so as a teenager, and my parents can attest to this, I drove them insane, insane. As a teenager... I did all sorts of things that I'm not proud of until one day when I was 17 years old, Jesus came through Samaria and filled this outcast and this misfit with his love and with purpose. And and, and he forgave my sins and he gave me a future. He gave me a purpose and he gave me a plan. He came through Samaria. If Jesus is willing to love the misfits and the outcasts, how dare we avoid them? Many of you sitting in here today were misfits and outcasts before Jesus came into your life. 
The problem is, is that we get into church. Jesus cleans us up. We get our sports coats on. We get, we get our haircuts with our line in the side. We, 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 get, we get our behaviors changed a little bit and we forget where we came from. We forget that Jesus had to go through Samaria. Whether you grew up in church your entire life or, or you were a drug addict or you were whatever... Jesus had to go through Samaria in order to find you because our righteousness is like filthy rags to God. We can't be good enough to make it to heaven or Jesus wouldn't have to come. We just, we can't forget where we came from. Back in March, God put it on my heart to speak to the Crawford family about praying about whether to come to New York City or not. And so I... uh, I met with Kevin uh, Crawford. Well, you'll see them later on in the service. I met with Kevin Crawford at Chick-fil-A. And uh, I w- we were sipping on our coffee, eating our chicken minis. And I started sharing with them what we were going to do in New York City. And I said, would you consider praying about coming with us to New York City? And Kevin, he's about six foot two. He's bald at the time. He had a you know, beard. He's a little bit intimidating. He's pretty fit, you know. And, and, and this, this guy... This guy, this man, he started tearing up in his eyes and he started telling me his story. And he started telling me about how he grew up feeling like an outcast and a misfit. He grew up in his home feeling like he didn't belong and it caused him to do some things in his life that he regrets now. And he said that he got saved in his 20s and and, and when he got saved, he started asking God what he was supposed to do. His parents were preachers, and he felt like he had a call on his life. But every time he would ask God what he was supposed to do, he would never get an answer. And he would ask and ask and ask and ask. And finally, out of frustration, he said, God, I'm not going to ask you what I'm supposed to do anymore. I'm going to wait for somebody to ask me to do something, and I'm going to answer the call. And he said, Steve, you're an answer to that prayer. And him and his family, they're selling everything, packing their bags, and they're moving to New York City. I told the whole church, so you can't back out now. <laughs> God is calling the misfits and the outcasts to do something great for him. Let's look at how this story ends. Verse 39. Many of the Samaritans from that village committed themselves to him because of the woman's witness. He knew all about the things I did. He knows me inside and out. They asked him to stay on, so Jesus stayed two days. A lot more people entrusted their lives to him when they heard what he had to say. They said to the woman, we're no longer taking this on your say-so. We've heard it for ourselves and know it for sure. He's the savior of the world. Could I get the worship team or Clay and whoever's supposed to be up here in place, please? This morning, Jesus is challenging us to pass through some places that we would normally avoid. Jesus is calling us to love the outcasts and the misfits. And finally, and I used all C's today in honor of pastor for my points, Jesus is commissioning us to reach our community one person at a time. One person At a time. Pastor says this all the time. God didn't call me to win the whole city. We can't fit 300,000 people in this building. But he's called us to reach one person in our community 
at a time. Because Jesus refused to avoid Samaria. And he refused to avoid the Samaritan woman. Even though it was culturally, socially, and professionally unacceptable. This woman testified to that entire village. And that entire village came to faith in Jesus. Because Jesus didn't overlook the one. The doors opened for the entire village to hear his message. Don't ever overlook the one. Jesus said, if you need to, you need to leave the 99 in order to go after the one. He said, if you lose a coin, you need to rearrange your whole house. You, you need to lift up the couches. You need to lift up the cushions. You need to move the, the, the kitchen table around. You need to move the TV stand around. You need to find that one lost coin because it's that valuable. Don't ever overlook the one. As I close this morning, I want to leave you with this challenge. There is someone at work that you need to reach. There is a parent of one of the kids on your child's soccer, t-ball, baseball, football, basketball team that you need to reach. There is a family member that you need to reach. There is someone in your neighborhood that you need to reach. There might be someone in our church that you need to reach. Never overlook the one. That's my heartbeat. That's my passion. That, that, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm going to New York City to do. That's what my wife and I, that's our vision, to not overlook the one. Because Jesus went through Samaria and he didn't overlook me. He didn't overlook the Samaritan woman. He didn't overlook you. And our church, as long as I'm the lead pastor, it's always going to be about the one. It's always going to be about that one person that we can reach. Let's pray this morning. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning. Move in hearts. Move in hearts. I pray for soft hearts all over this place. Is there anyone this morning that you are wandering in Samaria and you need Jesus to meet you at the well this morning? You're lost. You're not living for Christ. You don't have an up-to-date relationship with Jesus. You're living in sin. And you need deliverance. You need freedom. You need forgiveness. You want to receive what Christ has already done for you. If that's you in here, I want you to lift up your hands quickly. If you need Jesus today, if you were to leave here, you were to die, you don't know where you're, you don't know where you're headed. You don't know heaven or hell, I don't know. But you want to be sure today. I want you to lift up your hand in this place. Is there anybody at all? You need Jesus. You're wandering. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Is there anybody else that you would lift up your hand and say, I need Christ. I need forgiveness. Anybody else? 
I don't want to take too much time here. Thank you. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? God is dealing with you. The Holy Spirit is dealing with you. Is there anybody else? Before I wind this thing down, is there anybody else? All right. There were two people that raised their hands this morning that want to receive salvation. And I want all of us to pray this prayer together. Father, I come to you today a sinner. I need your grace. I'm living in a way that is not honoring to you. And today, I repent of my sins and I receive your forgiveness. I believe that you took my place upon the cross. You took my punishment upon yourself. And today, I receive a change of status. I go from sinner to saint. I go from outsider to insider. I go from a slave to sin to a son and daughter of the king. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for passing through Samaria this morning to meet with me. In Jesus' name. Amen. Can we give the Lord a shout of praise for what he did in those two lives?